You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. everybody. My name is Danny Anderson, and you're listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I thank you for downloading this. And uh, this is a special episode. We normally, as you know, as a network, the Christian Humanist Radio Network, do a Halloween crossover uh, every year where we all sort of uh, hit on a, a similar uh, uh, set of uh artifacts that are related um, and cross uh, streams of the network. This this uh, year, if you are growing up in evangelical circles, as we all are, as many of us are at least, um, there's a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And someone at the network, and, and I can't for the life of me remember who came up with the idea, I believe it was Alexis Neal, but, uh, but if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. They came up with the idea of doing a network crossover of basically reactions to that show um, about Mark Driscoll's uh, church in Seattle, the uh, Mars Hill Church and its rise and fall, and particularly the Christian Christianity Today podcast that is about that um, story. And so um, I'm very uh, I've been listening to that. Um, since the summer, I was flying back from Florida, actually, and I binged like the first three or four episodes on the flight uh, home, uh, and I was like hooked at that point, and then I, I kept up with them um, ever since then, and it just wrapped up as we're recording this, and so I know that we're doing a show, and I believe the Christian Feminist Podcast is going to be doing a show, and I know the City of Man is going to be doing a show, and the flagship may or may not be. I actually can't remember <laughs> at this point. So, um, but check, uh, across the network for other sort of angles. Um, the angle that I'm going to take is kind of, uh, an analysis a little bit of the institutional forces, um, uh, that kind of come to light in that show. And joining me to do this is, uh, Josh Herring. Josh is a friend of the network, uh, through, uh, the City of Man podcast. And, uh, this is the first time he's been on this show. And I, I'd like to let Josh uh, introduce himself a little bit. Thank you, Josh. Well, thanks a bunch, Danny. It is a delight to be on your show. I've enjoyed uh, listening to different shows on the on the network for about a decade, I think. I was I was a new seminary student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and desperately looking for something that would still feed the humanity side of my soul. And uh, that that's when I found the uh, Christian Humanist podcast. And uh, they were still in early days figuring out kind of what exactly their show was and their style, but. Uh, I've been listening kind of throughout and have thoroughly enjoyed kind of those guys' journey and then uh, the different spinoff shows that are now part of a whole network. So I uh, love, love to be here. Uh, so <coughs> quick update, I guess, uh, about me. And uh, I, I probably want to start by just saying I don't really feel qualified in any way to offer any kind of authoritative opinions. I don't know Mark Driscoll. I was never a member of Mars Hill. I don't know anyone who was directly a member of Mars Hill, but I did listen to the podcast. So uh, if, if having listened to the show is enough to uh, entitle me to an opinion, I, I have those. And <laughs> so uh, I'll mention first, I'm a podcaster as well. I'll uh, quickly shamelessly plug my show, The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Uh, listeners, please don't drop this show, but do at some point check out The Optimistic Curmudgeon. 
Uh, we, uh, it's an interview show where I talk with people who have sometimes controversial opinions, and uh, we want to kind of get those out and see what those opinions are and why they're qualified to hold them. I'm also a PhD student with Faulkner University and their Great Books Honors College. I'm uh, closing in on the dissertation stage, so I'm very excited to uh, be wrapping that journey up. And uh, by day, I'm a humanities teacher and uh, for most years, but this year in particular, uh, I'm an assistant administrator for Thales Academy Apex in Apex, North Carolina. So my wife and I settled in North Carolina. We love it here. And uh, about, goodness, probably about six weeks ago, my dad texted me and asked if I had heard this new, about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And I was like, no, what is that? And he sent me the link. And I think at that point there were six or seven episodes up. I listened to everything that was up over that next weekend. And uh, it was fascinating. So I, I, too, have followed it since then. I made it through the last two two-hour-long episodes, yeah. which... I mean, goodness gracious, those were long episodes. But uh, so, yeah, that that's me. That That's who I am, where I'm from. And I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, me too. Thanks for being here. And and as to your qualifications, uh, like, first of all, everybody's qualified to be on this show. <laughs> so so if, uh, if anybody out there listening wants to be on this show, you're qualified. So, um, But also um, in terms of your reaction to the, the Mars Hill podcast, I, I too have no sort of like connection to that world. Right. And I didn't even grow up in, in a reformed uh, background. So I, I don't have, I, I have this generally evangelical background. Um, but surely from your theological training at Southeast Baptist, um, uh, is that right? South, is that, am I saying it right? Southeastern, yeah. yeah. Southeastern Baptist. Thank you. Um, surely like a lot of the streams are crossing because, um, of X, you know, the church planting network and all that. Very much so. I mean, I, I was at Southeastern from 2011 to 2016 and, uh, as a good alum, I try to just at least keep in touch with friends who are still there working on degrees. Uh, when I was there as a student, uh, Mark Driscoll was popular. He was hip. He was on the rotation of people who would come in to preach in chapel, mm. uh, as was Mark Dever. So I, I especially appreciated the episode where like Driscoll and Dever are sort of, you see the very opposite focuses they have. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But and that was, uh, uh, I remember another, uh, Tully and Chavidian was another name that was very popular, but um, like Chavidian and Driscoll both were sort of uh, rising stars that flamed out, at least over the years I was there. I mean, it, for a while, it seemed like if you were in church planting and you liked beer, uh, Acts 29 was your home. <laughs> but by the time I left, uh, I don't remember a lot of people talking, by the time I graduated, I don't remember a lot of people talking about Acts 29. It was less, it was just not part of the, uh, the atmosphere of the seminary. And I mean, uh, I was there when, when real marriage came out and, uh, it was a bit of a campus controversy because our campus president, Danny Aiken had endorsed the book and then people read the book and there were lots of questions about like, <laughs> Whoa, Dr. Aiken, do you really, do you really affirm everything that's in this book? And, uh, it just, so, uh, and I should also mention, I grew up in uh, First Baptist Church of Clarksville and First Baptist Church of Norfolk. Uh, my dad was a youth pastor and is now a minister of education for First Baptist Church of Norfolk. Uh, First, First Norfolk had a satellite campus uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so uh, there were definitely parts of that show that I resonated with, kind of growing up in evangelical culture and youth group at a church that had the satellite campus that really prioritized the senior pastor is the one who preaches at the central campus and also at the other campus. And that was that was a very 
popular model for a time and, and remains so. Yeah. Yeah. My, my in-laws uh, have wintered for the last several years in Florida. And uh, so we'll go down and visit them. And we visited a church down there. Um, I, I could probably produce the name if I tried hard enough, but I won't. Uh, but, and uh, yeah, and it was one of these satellite driven churches. And we all sat there and watched the TV feed of a previously recorded sermon. Right. And, and we all said amen to the, to the screen. Right. And so to, for someone like me, that was very weird and alien, but I gather it's very prominent in a lot of those kind of mega church settings. Uh, uh, it is. I mean, the, probably the biggest one, and in, in my context now, at least, is the Summit Church with uh, Pastor J.D. Greer. Hmm. And uh, they I've lost count of how many campuses they have in the Triangle area. But uh, they do a live satellite feed, so it's not pre-recorded. Uh, but J.D. is piped into each of those other campuses. And to some degree, it's effective. I mean, there's... Uh, but I think there's, it's, I find it really interesting that you do have to buy into a certain theory of communication to mm. really go down the satellite campus road. I mean, you have to really agree that God has specially gifted this man to preach and in such a way that instead of equipping others to preach at other locations, we need to get him to as many people as possible. And that seemed to be part and parcel of Driscoll. And it, uh, it's also... Uh, in a more positive sense, it's also part of J.D. Greer's uh, ministry for sure. Yeah. And I, one of the things I want to get to are sort of the structural f- scenarios that uh, give rise to someone like Driscoll. And I think that a lot of um, what happens basically in like Christian education and uh, and also just sort of church culture in general, it really does set the stage for that kind of thing. And uh, and I think I think you're totally right. And it's, it's interesting to frame it as a uh, a theory of communication because that's also an excellent um, uh, perspective on it too. Now, for me, my I like I said, I grew up Nazarene. I think I told you off air, but my so we were sort of I think. If you took a, a, a zoom enough out, we would be counted as evangelical. Um, but as part of the kind of uh, ebbs and flows of evangelical culture, Nazarenes are kind of insular, really, um, having in their own publishing house and all this sort of thing, uh, which was an interesting decision they made back in the 70s to maintain that, but um, uh, which maintained a, a very weirdly distinctive um, <laughs> kind of theology, honestly. But um, the um, uh, but I'm still sort of part of the general movement. So I'm sort of aware of these things, though I never sort of lived them in the ways that other people did. Right. Um, however, I will say listening to this show, um, a few, many, many things uh, came to light. Like, even though I was never a part of a church like Mars Hill, I definitely encountered people um, in every church family I've been a part of that were now to me, obviously listening to Mark Driscoll, right? Um, I've heard things that on this podcast that I remember specific people saying in specific times, right? And so now I know where that came from. Um, and, and there are, um, I, I'm aware of, um, people, friends of mine, I'm not going to name names here, of course, but, um, who became church planters themselves. And I was always sort of a little put off, frankly, about their kind of, hyper-masculine approach to Christianity. And now it's very clear to me where they were getting this from, right? Uh, it's very clear to me that how even, even outside of its immediate circle, the forces that shaped Mark Driscoll and Mark Driscoll himself had influence um, outside of that X-29 network, right? It, it really did affect um, the broader um, 
evangelical culture, Christian culture, I would say even. And, um, and the second thing is I actually, for a time in my life, lived in New York City back in the uh, late nineties. And, um, I, I attended Timothy Keller's church. Um, <laughs> I would go every Sunday night <clears throat> up Park Avenue and, uh, and go to Hunter College and, um, and uh, I really loved uh, those services. So I, to this day, have a great deal of respect for Tim Keller. Um, and uh, I really, um, uh, and incidentally, he is like battling cancer right now. So everybody out there oh, listening could uh, could pray for him. I'll be sure to pray for him. Yes, uh, pan- oh. pancreatic, I believe. And it's, mm. uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I understand that for a lot of progressive Christians, Tim Keller is like this uh, anathema part of the uh, part of the problem. But for me, someone who comes out of a very sort of low church problem, Protestant evangelical suburban experience. Tim Keller is an essential part of my um, development at, um, spiritually. Like he like opened up Christianity to mm. someone like me in ways you can't you can't even, I can't even describe right. And so I have a lot of respect for Tim Keller. Um, and it was interesting to me the way he comes in and out of the story um, a little bit as someone who frankly maybe not so actively, but at least passively platformed Mark Driscoll, right? Um, because of uh, the ways that Mark Driscoll was quote unquote, having success in terms of like numbers, right? Um, the, the, Oh, a gospel coalition um, is what mm-hmm. I'm thinking of. And um, the Tim Keller's involvement with that, um, like really that, institution also sort of enabled uh, Mark Mark Driscoll for all of, all the good that it does there's also that that part of it too so that was a little bit harrowing and I to this day I'm still a stan of of uh, of Tim Keller for many years after I left I subscribed to the tapes uh, they, I would get the, the tapes of the sermons back in the day sure. you know? that's how old I am right and so uh, I would get the tapes sent home and I'd listen to the sermons that way so um, but anyway so um, that's sort of my kind of positioning in relationship to this conversation. Josh, I'd love to know what your kind of general reactions to the podcast um, itself um, are. You'd mentioned to me, you have some reservations about its narrative, but, um, but um, I'd love to hear some detailed uh, expressions of that. Sure. Um, Yeah. I think, uh, I think this will partially touch on some of the things you mentioned a moment ago. I think um, for starters, um, I just do want to, I thought it was incredibly well produced. I mean, it, it is clear that uh, Mark Cosper and his team are definitively a team, and they have the resources of Christianity Today. They've got the editing. I mean, there's a there's a whole list of people at the end of each episode. So mm-hmm. it's there's a team putting it together, and it's very well put together. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of a several years ago. I talked with a friend of mine, uh, Scott Goff, who uh, he was a media major at Union University at the time, and he had though. I'm probably going to butcher the number, but he had some number of like 180 hours of footage that goes into the average documentary for every single minute that gets put into the finished product. Yeah. Uh, this felt like that to me. I mean, it felt like a long-term journalistic effort that has been very well put together. And I don't mean that to kind of diminish the quality of the journalism, but I do think it matters that we – like I think people should do with any form of journalism or any form of communication, you've got to always know there is always a persuasive element in play. So in which case, I think Cosper is very clear from the first episode that he is not just talking about Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. He is talking about evangelical evangelicalism writ large. And he believes that uh, the kind of the uh, adoration of the, cent- of the preaching pastor and the... Um, 
what if we wanted to be hyperbolic? We could say the idolatry of the leader. Sure. Um, he thinks that that's widespread. That's the piece that I'm not entirely sure I agree with him on. I think it certainly can be prevalent, but I think we I, we may be in different places here about the, the realities of kind of structural issues. Mm-hmm. But I think when we focus on, we try to paint with too broad a brush when it comes to uh, those kinds of questions and say, wow, this is a problem everywhere. It actually <coughs> poses a different problem where we lose sight of like the actual few churches where that may be a substantial issue. Mm-hmm. So if we try to say this is a systemic problem of pastoral leadership, I think we lose sight of like, well, maybe there are some pastors who like this really does describe and we need to focus on. So, but I think that that's just worth keeping in mind as we discuss this. I don't think that it's not to the point where I would say it's like slanted as in terms of a fallacy, but I do think there is a narrative in play there. And that's also, but at the same time, uh, that's also part and parcel of the overall scaling up that Mars Hill does, <laughs> where in order to maintain the size of an organization and kind of the branding across 15 campuses at a thousand people per campus mm. and a massive leadership, <coughs> massive leadership team, they, they, they sort of that then they have to construct the narrative of themselves and they do that. And that's, that's, so it's, it's, I just think it's more convoluted. It's more complex than like, every senior pastor is secretly Mark Driscoll in disguise and is about to uh, destroy your church. If he ever uses some hip references, like I don't think that's a realistic portrayal of churches at the same time. uh, I say that as somebody who has generally avoided large churches since about age 18, I found a lot more spiritual vitality in smaller churches where uh, I know the pastor and the pastor knows me and the pastor's focus is on the physical people in that church with a strong focus on membership rather than an expansive focus on a digital congregation. So what do you, what do you make of all that, Danny? What, what, what are your thoughts there? You know, I largely agree with you um, with those uh, in that analysis. I, I, cause I, I'm the same way. I, I much prefer like a small intimate uh, community um, that, um, like sort of knows people, right? There were people know each other and it isn't, it's less of a consumer um, product that you're just sort of attending, right? Um, it's less of a concert right. experience, right? Uh, and, and so I, I feel like that that's my preference as well. Um, I So I, I guess I only take a... I don't even know if I disagree with your your criticism of the narrative. I mean, Christianity Today is coming from this sort of like I mean, it's sort of like the NPR of Christianity, <laughs> you will. You know, it's 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 this very sort of like educated centrist um, perspective uh, uh, that it brings to most of the things that it um, kind of uh, that it looks at. And this podcast, I think, is very reflective of that, right? And so, um, and and the people that Cosper interviews are very qualified and they go to find experts if not firsthand witnesses right um uh and so it, it very much follows an npr model uh in, in its um telling of this story and yeah and it does try to i think come up with this sort of like grand narrative if you will to explain uh an inherent problem with all of christianity and so and and i think i i understand what you're saying and i think you're right um that that, that every big church is not 
Mars Hill and every mega church pastor is not like Andy Stanley is not Mark Driscoll, right? You know, um, I mean, maybe he is actually, I have no idea. I'm just using that as an example that comes to head. I really know nothing about Andy yeah. Stanley. Um, but, um, At but the very least, he's lasted far longer than Mark Driscoll did. I mean, yeah. Andy Stanley was also a big name back in 2010 and 2021, as far as I know, I do think he's drifted a little bit centrist and maybe progressive in his theology, but he's not had any moral failings that have disqualified him from ministry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm, where I would take a slight nuance to what you're saying, uh, just like a very small difference and you may see it as not so small, but I do think it's, it's interesting. So those churches that are successful, I think are successful in some ways out of luck. And when I say successful, I mean, they don't fall into the moral failings that Mars Hill fell into. Okay. Um, those churches that like Andy Stanley, for example, um, it's a little bit lucky that the wrong person didn't step into that space. Right. Um, and, and I think that this is to me, um, what's useful about the Mars Hill podcast is that it shows how all of these like institutional forces within Christianity, all the way from publishing to church planting organizations to all the kind of like institutions of power, uh, of networking and power and career advancement and professionalism, all of those things that make up the, 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 the business of Christianity, if you will. Um, they have created a system where I think in almost every case, if the wrong person happened to fool the right people in the right moment, it, it's they could end up as as Mars Hill, right? And so I think that that kind of um, perspective is um, uh, to me correct. Um, I see what you're saying. They don't all do that, but in some ways, I see that as almost more lucky <laughs> than anything else. I don't necessarily see these board of director driven um, uh, churches as necessarily able to discern. Um, the frauds in the way that they think they can, because what they're aimed at looking at are sort of bottom line successes, right? Um, measurable success, right? Um, butts and seats, whatever it is, um, uh, book, book sales, those kinds of things. That is what defines success for these organizations. And so once you have, some, I, it, it's very possible in almost every scenario for someone to take those power structures, um, and misuse them. I, 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 in, You've been on City of Man. You probably have more of a, uh, a more of a historical perspective on that than I do. But I, that, that's sort of my answer to. You. I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I, we're going to be uh, congenial to each other. I, <laughs> I, I suspect because I, I don't disagree with that either. I mean, I think there's, I, I think your 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 focus on how on defining success is very interesting, and I think that's where that's a place where churches can very easily run afoul. I think um, scripture is incredibly clear about what success is for church and ministry. Uh, First Timothy three lays out the qualifications of a pastor uh, of an elder and Titus two does the same thing. Paul's really clear that uh, Timothy needs to be on the lookout for a very specific type of man to entrust the faith that was passed to him and, and call those men to leadership. The, the picture of leadership success that we get from the apostles and from church history is really that I think it's the working out of Jesus' statement, take up your cross each day, uh, be prepared to die for your faith. Like that's, that's the definition of success. Um, when anything else takes place, 
and, and displaces that as definition of success, I think then we're, we're, we're in a very dangerous spot because you've lost sight of, you've lost sight of the fact that God is at work saving souls. It's not Mark Driscoll who's at work saving souls. I thought that was something Cosper did very well. He mm-hmm. showed us throughout, he showed us kind of the shift in, in Driscoll's character over time, how he begins as this young charismatic figure who is so passionate about, you have to hear this message of hope because it's this message of hope that will save you from despair and sin. And he's taking that message to people who really would never hear it from First Baptist Church of insert your town here. And he's he's taking that to prostitutes and drug addicts and bikers and and, and really the, the least of these in our societal mechanism. But over time, by this like by the time you get to episodes eight, nine, and ten, I think it has become the Mark Driscoll show yeah. every service. And it's and at that point, it's no longer about I think Cosper Du made this made this point is like it's no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. It and that's where you start to see some of those uh, you mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the, uh, you've not been in a world like Mars Hill, which I thought was a very interesting phrase because uh, as you listen to the show, it sounds like it grows into its own insular world. Yeah, It's a world of Mark's teachings. It's a world of Mark's people. It's a world of Mark's ideas. And I mean, the difficulty I find in listening to that is that I do agree with probably 60 to 80% of what is said while disagreeing with maybe... 90% of how it's said and like but then you see this whole world that's shaped around this one person's personality which I think pushes back to right back to like the real question for church staff that listen to this podcast uh, is really okay we need to go back to what does scripture say as the actual leader of the church yeah yeah and I mean maybe this is a question we can revisit later but like whether a mega church is ever the right solution at this point in history? Like, I, I actually have that question. I, I don't know that they should exist. Um, and, um, and I, I don't know that they shouldn't, but I have a serious question about them. Um, because the only way they can exist to me is through the sort of corporate structure where you have a CEO at the top organizing it all. Right. And so, um, and so that, that's, I mean, we can get back to that later, but, um, I, on the point of Driscoll though, one thing that, um, really kind of st- struck me, so Driscoll and I are of the same kind of generation. He's older than I am. I mean, I think he's sort of a late generation Xer and I'm sort of right in the middle. Um, and, but I, and this is me being confessional here. I, I like, I recognized a lot of myself in Mark Driscoll, right? Um, the problems he identified with Christianity and the way it's practiced. Um, I agreed with many of them, not necessarily the, the, the anti-feminist kind of take where he thought men were being, you know, demasculinated or whatever. (laughs) Like, I I don't necessarily agree with that stuff, but the, the kind of like blase sort of, uh, I, uh, structures that you see in the eighties, right. Um, of, of big churches that seem to have no point. They don't really do anything. Right. I have often felt exactly like that. And so I feel like, in many ways, I've ident- I, I identify with him in the way he saw the problem he was addressing, right? Um, and I know that myself, I've been guilty of this. Uh, I people have had me in class. I don't know if any of them listen to the show. I doubt it, but um, <laughs> but I feel like I've grown a lot as a teacher 
because I've let go some of my more Driscoll-like tendencies. Like I think there were times in my life as a teacher when I would try to be edgy just to sort of get people's attention, right? And uh, yep. and to sort of say, whoa, this guy's not really part of all that, right? And so, um, and, and I've much grown past that now, right? And, and I feel like um, my teaching is vastly improved, <laughs> frankly, because of that. Um, and so when I listen to this Mark Driscoll, um, when I see this profile of Mark Driscoll and the evolution, like I can see a lot of the problems that surface later in even the idealistic less problematic version of him at the beginning. There was this sort of like hubristic uh, naivete about his own kind of uh, the force of his own personality. Um, and so I really took that as a kind of like, uh, I could, if I had been in the wrong situations, I might've ended up as, as abusive as him, right? You know, if I had been placed in a situation with that kind of power, with that kind of perspective that I was bringing on these things. And so um, that was a very kind of chilling um realization for me um how much i saw my of myself in mark driscoll okay i don't know if you have any well, that, that's really i think that's fascinating in part because i think it uh, it makes me think of my one of my uh as a first year teacher uh i i got to this point where it wasn't quite the uh it wasn't the edginess per se for me but it was this uh very adversarial nature where i sort of thought of my own classroom as sort of a uh Marxist dialectic mm. where I was like, either I'm in control or the students are in control mm. and I'm coming into the room every day and by golly, I am going to be the one in charge. And that was part of me maturing as a teacher was realizing that is an incredibly unhealthy way to think about really anything, yeah. much less a life on life coaching encounter with great ideas. That is really, I think the heart of teaching. Yeah. And I think Driscoll has some of that. He definitely has the edginess, but there's also like this constant adversarialness where it's him against the world it's yeah. mars hill against the world and it's anything in his way it's his job to just steamroll right over that's where so i thought the, the the bus analogy that kept coming up really was really fitting yeah. um, as a tangent uh do you by any chance ever read uh phd comics i i have in the past i haven't for a while but <laughs> but yes it reminded me of one of my favorite ones that uh it it has uh six different types of professors and one of them is the edgy beatnik professor who's like 26. I think I remember this one. At, <laughs> at the bottom, it's like the old guy professor who's like the patient plotter. <laughs> Boring is all get out, but he does actually explain everything. And he's the one that the student learns the most from. Yeah. But I think there's something about growth in teaching over time that you, hopefully we don't ever lose whatever makes us interesting to students. But it does, we do drift more towards that patient plotter than the, the young, excitable beatnik. Yeah, gosh, I often I hate to even think about people who had me earlier. Like I, I, I'm almost apologetic for having they had to sit through my classes, right? You know, um, like uh, I mean, I think you know, generally my students have liked me. There are some who don't, right? Of course, but um, but but I still I like cringe when I look back at like earlier versions of myself, and and um, and I'm sure that I'll do the same thing when I look back to this point in my life ten years from now. But um, but uh, but yeah. So but and a lot of it has to do exactly what you're saying there. Yeah, this sort of like, I don't know, overly enthusiastic. Uh, I, it all comes down to sort of a lack of self-reflection, right? Um, and, and, and a lack of keeping 
you know, an eye on your own sort of motivations and what it is you're actually trying to accomplish there. Um, and yeah, and that honestly, what you said about the, uh, the, the power dialectic, uh, in a classroom, that is honestly why, and this is a controversial opinion of mine. I understand people who insist on being called doctor in class. Um, I understand that impulse. And I, if they ask that, I always, um, support that. But for me, like it, it overly emphasizes the authoritarian structure right. of teaching, right? Like, um, I, I don't, I let them do that if they like. I just tell them, I tell them my name and they, I let them call me whatever they like. And many of them will defer to doctor. <clears throat> many of them will refer to Mr. or Professor or whatever. I don't care. Um, some will call me by my first name and I don't care. Um, particularly if they had me for a while. But, um, but yeah, so to me, I, I try to, I try to push back a little bit or at least be aware of the dangers of that sort of power dynamic, uh, in the classroom. And, um, and I think the, the Driscoll example is a good reason <laughs> to do that because that's someone who never pushed back on the power dynamic. He, in fact, sought it and cultivated it. Um, mm-hmm. and you mentioned the, uh, the bus metaphor. That is sort of almost oh, like, yeah. it's a central part of his, of that story, right? It keeps coming sure. up over and over. Um, and if you haven't listened to the show, he, is speaking at a conference or something right after he's fired some people. Um, and, and he said that, um, there's a lot of bodies behind the bus and the bus isn't going to move. You either get on the bus and stay with the bus or the bus is going to run over you. And by the time I'm done, I want that pot, that pile to be a mountain of bodies, right? Um, it's just like, I, I don't understand how you can say that in public without pushing back on yourself, right? Uh, like without any awareness that that's a terrible thing to say. And I don't know uh, if you've ever listened, or follow Julie Roy's um, work. She's an investigative reporter who investigates like church abuse scandals generally. But I listen to her podcast periodically. And um, she did a podcast about someone who's currently looking into Mark Driscoll's current church in Arizona. It's like in uh, somewhere in Arizona. I don't remember. Oh, uh, it's called Trinity I Church. Definitely wanted to know more about his current church by the end of the show. I was like, where, what are you now, yeah. 10 years after all, or six years after all this? It's apparently worse. He's apparently like learned from his mistakes and he has a much more centralized control. He doesn't allow um, his books to be opened um, for financial purposes. He doesn't have a, a governing board of elders at all at this point. Um, it, it's He's basically like uh, found a way to consolidate even more power. But one of the things that came out in the the Julie Roy's podcast, it's called the Roy's report. If anybody's listening, interested in it. Um, and I can't remember who she was interviewing about this, but they said that there was, uh, he literally put a bus, um, in front of the church, um, at, like as just a prop, right? It was never to be used or anything, but there was a bus in front of the church and to me, the implication is clear. It's like he's doubling down on this metaphor, right? Um, that's become almost like a sanctified symbol, like a, cr- a cross in front of a church. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, this is sort of like the motivating ideology of, of his church at this point. And so, yeah, that whole idea of the bus is is, is fascinating. It, it definitely, I don't know, but brings at least two thoughts to my mind. The first is the, um, I think there's a, there's a tension between... I, I well, I don't know. I've never I have interned at First Baptist Church of Norfolk, but beyond that, and I've interned at the church I'm currently a member at, Christ Covenant Church. Beyond those internships, I've never been on staff, so I think this is how it works. But um, I could be wrong about this. But I, I, from those two internships, I at least think there is a 
there's a tension between ministry and professionalism. Yeah. And like, at what point, like things that realistically no one would ever tolerate in a professional job, like you would go straight to HR, you'd file a complaint, <laughs> you would go ahead and tick that little box on LinkedIn and says, looking for new opportunities. <laughs> like you, you do all those things if stuff happened in a regular job. But when there's something about the church, I mean, I think I know what it is. I mean, it's the, it is the literal mission of the church. It's the idea that you are part of an organization that is bringing the good news of Jesus' salvation to the world. And, well, if you need to just kind of suck it up and, and deal with it, you can. I mean, that, and on the one hand, I love the missional drive. I think organizations that don't have a, a mission, they tend to have trouble holding on to people long term. Uh, if all you have is the professional reasons and a salary, if anyone else wants your employees, they just have to beat those professional reasons and a salary. But goodness, I mean, the I think there, there's so many moments in that show where you see uh, when, when there's just not the sort of protections that a typical corporation of that size would have of the employee. And I mean, it. it uh, I went through a uh, I have a couple articles out on the Internet about this, this story. I'll, I'll at least briefly mention that uh, I went through a period in college where I at least thought of myself as a leaning Marxist in terms of like workers rights and like band together. Uh, th this sort of story brings all that back in the mm. sense that like, it's the workers, it's the people who are making this machine roll who are being crushed by the machine. And we have a lot of protections in place for that in mainstream society that just aren't necessarily there in the church. Yeah. Um, the other thing it makes me think of is uh, Jesus's metaphor in the gospel of Luke about uh, wolves and sheep's clothing. I think you look at Mark Driscoll, you look at what he says, and he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about people being saved. He's talking about lives being changed. And what, what this show reveals, at least, is that there is an awful lot of devouring of the people who got close to Mars Hill, who got close to Mark Driscoll. And it's not really shepherding so much as something that looks like a shepherd and manages to devour the flock. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I got to go back one one step when you're talking about like professionalism and and, and calling and that sort of thing. That is a real danger um, working in any kind of nonprofit setting at all, right? Um, like you, there people abuse employees uh, and, and overwork them and expect too much of them in those kinds of settings, whether it be they churches. Be they soup kitchens, like, you know what I mean? Like teaching uh, can work this way. Like how, how often, I mean, in my life, I have only very recently learned to say no to some things, right? <laughs> um, and, and to benefit my own sanity. Uh, and so, but yeah, that is a thing that in which you feel like there's this higher purpose to what you're doing beyond the material, uh, you know, remuneration that you're going to get for it. And so I, I feel like that's a recipe for that kind of abuse, right? Uh, of, of people in that way. Um, and I'm torn on this because like you, you you want to have that mission, right? And I often said, <coughs> this is going to say, I'm using this metaphorically, okay? So don't don't read too much into this. But I said to my wife, um, probably the church that we went to that I felt most passionate about, most at home, most the most spiritual growth was probably the one that from the outside looked most like a cult, <laughs> okay? And so um, and I would, I kind of, 
to me, I'm, I'm convinced of this, that I'm not saying cults are good, but if your church doesn't look a little like a cult, it's probably not doing anything worth doing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I don't know how to say that in a way that isn't like, uh, chilling, but, uh, but, and, and I'm stretching the meaning of cult, right? Right. But, but, but I mean, like, what, what I'm hearing in that is that it's the pieces of a cult that are incredibly attractive to people. It's, we're living life together. We, I mean, it's the same thing that happened with, um, uh, David Platt's church down in Alabama, where everybody moved to inner city Birmingham together. Yeah. And you're like, we live around each other. We work together. We eat together. We worship together. Yeah. You can see a definitive community. I mean, that our word, English word cult comes from the, the Latin cultus that, that really is referring to that center around which the, the community of worship gathered in, in antiquity. Yeah. And it's still something that kind of, I think, speaks to a human desire for community. Yeah. The Koinonia Farm is a good example in Georgia, mm. if, you're, if you're familiar with that story. Um, a, a, a basically kind of socialist cooperative um, that brought black and white people together um, working in this land in, in Georgia um, together to push back against like these racist things. And it's got this real religious tradition to it as well. And so something like that is so off the beaten path of, of normal society um, of, of the, of the ebb and flow of society that it looks weird and looks cult like. Right. Um, but there is something beautiful to what's going on there. And yeah, those, those churches. And then that's the part, I mean, that's why Driscoll was able to do what he was able to do was that people saw the abuses that they were putting up with as worth it because of the mission, the baptisms, the filling the, the Seahawks stadium up, all those kinds of things. Right. Um, and that, yeah. And so that's, uh, that's where it, it can, that, that beauty can be sort of put to um, evil purposes, I would say. Sure. I mean, and like everything, I mean, uh, like everything in this world, it's there, there's a, there's a creational good that's in play here. Uh, but that creational good is happening inside of a fallen world, and it yeah. can be subject to abuse. It can be marred. I mean, how many people were interviewed on that show who sort of they seem to refer to their lives as before Mars Hill and after Mars Hill? Yeah. Like the Mars Hill community just becomes this this formative experience for them. I thought it was, I mean, and maybe that speaks to why people stuck around for so long. I mean, there are interviews i kept waiting for people to say oh yeah i got in and realized wow this is toxic and i left yeah they didn't they stayed 10 12 13 14 15 years <laughs> yeah yeah um because they were clearly getting something out of it right um on some level and, and then at some point that balance just shifted right and and they gained the perspective to see that well and also i think what's the really heartbreaking to me about the later episodes are people coming to the realization that yes, they were uh, receiving abuse and they were sort of being bullied and that sort of thing, but they realized they must have also been delivering that to other people, right? To be part of that system was to also be an abuser. Um, and so, um, and that was, uh, um, that was something that, uh, was really chilling to me that, that they were able to kind of like um, see their own complicity, I suppose, in those structures. Um, and, and that that's the, the part that's really, really bad. And particularly, and I'm sure the Christian Feminist podcast will focus mostly on this, but the theology of complementarianism is sort of weaponized in, in this um, in this environment. And, and women 
are are really um I, I mean in some cases like actually abused by their husbands because of the theology that were um that they were working inside of right and that were so reinforced by the culture there and in some cases i think um it was it was less it was more subtle than that but it was no less sort of oppressive right and, and so yeah the, that's a particular like theological like area in which the power structures really came down hard um came to bear down hard on certain on certain people women i think that's a helpful phrase uh weaponized i mean because i think i was as i was listening throughout that i mean i'm my wife and I are both pretty firmly complementarian. After after ten years of being married, we've not that your theology working is necessarily proof that it's true, but uh, we found that, that that's been very helpful for us in, in developing a, a healthy marriage. But that the idea that that could be weaponized and and charged in such a way that uh, it really summons husbands to abuse their wives came through, I think, very clearly. Uh, I think one of the uh, episode. It was episode 11, maybe episode 12. Uh, but there was a, a, a wife who has since divorced her husband. Uh, she was interviewed. And I mean, oh, my goodness. Uh, when they were describing kind of like the, the teaching about marital sexuality and the way that was then applied in their marriage. I mean, it just uh, she used the phrase stripped of her agency that I thought was very effective. I mean, they, and I think uh, I think that too points to work that needs to happen within complementarian theology. It may have already have happened. Uh, it's been several years since I've read anything inside of that field, but I've worked through uh, Wayne Grudem and John Piper have the quintessential volume on that biblical manhood and womanhood, like a collection of journal articles. But there may have been something new since that came out, but where I think there's still room to really develop a clear theology of complementarianism that sees both men and women bearing the image of God as infinitely diverse and vast as the nature of God. And there is something distinctively masculine prop that's that's going to mean men are prone towards leadership. And there is something distinctively feminine that does mean that women are best served through some level of submission within marriage. But what that looks like can be infinitely vast because each is bearing the image of God within their particular context. I think what we saw in, with Driscoll and Mars Hill was really taking the precepts of complementarian theology and then narrowing it down to what Mark Driscoll learned growing up. I mean, and, and that's not nearly as vast as the picture of humanity that scripture gives us. I mean, you've got, you've got Queens, you've got, uh, you, you've got Eve as the mother of all life. You've got Ruth, uh, Ruth and Boaz and kind of Ruth proposing marriage to Boaz. And, uh, and you've got Esther kind of pursuing her King yeah. Uh, you've got all of these single women who, and married women who are followers of Jesus. You've got, uh, Lydia and Dorcas in the new Testament. Like we've got all of these pictures of a much more complex femininity throughout scripture that really get flattened. Yeah. Uh, the part that like just killed me was the, uh, Oh my God. It's so stupid. The, the thing about nachos. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Yeah. It, it's that such like man cave mentality. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, it's like, like where where was the picture of husbands love your wife to yeah. the point that Christ loves the church to the point that the husband's service to his wife is to the point of death. 
Yeah. There is nothing in scripture that says a man is entitled to get a beer and a plate of nachos when he walks in. Yeah. Instead, the picture of biblical masculinity is service to the point of death. Yeah. And that that was not present in the in this podcast's portrayal of Driscoll. Yeah, it's much more Arthurian, right? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And so, yeah, no. And honestly, this is another point at which I am kind of disconnected from that world theologically. I mean, I grew up Nazarene, which is actually a fairly conservative uh, theology in, in many ways. They have ordained women to preach since the beginning of the denomination, right? Uh, like in the 1910s or something like that, right? And so uh, that that whole idea. In fact, my mom eventually became a, uh, a Nazarene pastor. Um, but my yeah, and so that whole idea. That's a point at which I was sort of just like I didn't I couldn't connect to to the ideas. But I will say that was another point at which the institutions that the pre-existing institutions that were here before Mark Driscoll um, enabled Mark Driscoll, right? So that's one thing that appealed to them about him, right? That's one way in which he appealed to them um, is that these Acts 29 types, these gospel coalition types, um, they prized this complementarianism, right? As, as a core part of, of biblical theology right and in the way that they just in the way that they were defining it as you say you you're arguing very compellingly for a a more kind of robust idea about what that means um but in the way they were defining it mark driscoll was in line right with uh um, with their theology and that's another reason they were willing to put up with his crap right and and in fact ignore it i mean that was part of what I mean, that, that is part of what aligns him with the uh, stance he's apparently since rejected, but in the uh, young, restless, reformed crowd. I mean, that <clears throat> that movement tended to align with theological conservatism, which, I mean, was is polar opposed to the, the direction that contemporary society is going, especially if we keep in mind his context on the, on the West Coast. Yeah. I mean, where contemporary society is rejecting any distinctions between men and women, even to the point where you can biologically change between men and women if you can afford surgery and, and hormones and such. Uh, Driscoll was was touting what has been a traditional, that's a very traditional stance throughout Christian history. I mean, the, the idea of ordaining women is a, it starts in, a, I want to say, a ni- the 19th century as part of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, but it requires, I mean, it's this is a frequent topic of seminary study and debate, but I mean, it there are there are arguments that you can use to support it, but they require adopting certain convictions about uh, passages like First Timothy three are limited to Paul's time. So if we're going to say that when Paul says this is these are the qualifications for an elder, when Paul says the husband of one wife, well then we've got to suddenly contextualize all of that as being really about first century culture, and it no longer becomes part of the overall picture of scripture. So for theological conservatives, Driscoll sounds like a hip, up-to-date, with-it guy in a place that is known for being progressive back even before the term progressive was was as common as it is today. Yeah. And so I think that him being on that side theologically definitely also contributed to his popularity. Yeah. And it, but it's also what part of what I thought was really interesting. Um, this did not get as much focus in the show. But was his lack of theological training? Mm. I mean, I think, and this is a place where mm. I see Driscoll and Joshua Harris being combined, in that both guys have this meteoric rise to fame, and both of them get into the work of the logistics of running a ministry, running a church, dealing with 
personnel problems, and then sort of trying to pick up the education side on the fly. Yeah. Um, Driscoll's not been, he didn't have a seminary degree before he launched his church. That, that becomes a big part of the early episodes. He's bragging about the fact that he doesn't have that preparation. But that lack of preparation means he is promoted into discussion circles way earlier than he should be. Which I think Cosper also hints at, because you, you get this contrast between the age of John Piper, the age of, of um, John MacArthur, and Wayne Grudem, and kind of that generation of people who have, they've done the slow work of bachelor's, MDiv, usually a theological doctorate in Germany, and then pastor for a few years, and then you start to work your way up the system. Driscoll skipped all of that. So what you get is this very juvenile theology that realistically, I think any seminary professor could have shredded, but it also made, and and I don't know if you have large thoughts about plagiarism, but I kind of got angry at the plagiarism (laughs) episode. I was like, damn it. Yeah. I think some of my high school students are pulling like it's happening in pastoral circles. It's absurd. Well, and that connected to the fact that so much of that is ghost written. Right. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. he's hiring companies to do the research for him. Right. And and that's a hop, skip and a jump from pastors just signing their name on books that somebody else wrote. Right. Um, Just to sort of establish a brand uh, rather than any kind of actual contribution to anything. And so, um, yeah, that's part of this whole like system of like professional um, ambition that, um, that Driscoll is really kind of, I, I think he, the, he's sort of just the apotheosis of, of that culture. He's sort of like the, or, or the nadir, maybe we'll call it. <laughs> maybe that's, that's the opposite of the high. That's the low, the low of that culture. Right. And so, um, but because yeah, he just was able, and, and honestly, the reason I think that he was allowed to, and, and still is invited to conferences to speak on all these kinds of things is because of how success is calculated. So they see, oh, this guy's okay. in this really liberal place and filling, putting butts in seats. We can't, we got to let him do what he does because that's what we need to be doing, right? Um, that's how we reach the world, right? And, and so, um, but yeah, there's, there's, um, not enough time for reflection on, um, sort of the long term damage that this is doing. Um, yeah, in many ways, it's it's like the advertising industry being really good at selling things that are bad for us, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and so I think in a lot of ways, um, Mark Driscoll is like an ad man uh, that is really good at selling poisonous things to people in a way that made them feel good uh, for a short t- period of time. And uh, it's like he's only, it's a hop skipping. I mean, he would have been a great cigarette salesman in, in the Mad Men era, right? And so, um, but uh but yes, um, I, I wanted to talk um, briefly. We're pushing an hour already. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really, oh, I've really enjoyed this. Um, uh, often when I get, you know, the first time I speak to someone, it doesn't go this smoothly. So uh, I'd love to have you back um, many, many times in the future. So uh, just let me know. But um, I did want to talk a little bit about leadership uh, as a, I guess I'll call it an idolatry in the church, right? Uh, I think that from the time I sort of started paying attention to these kinds of things though that language that discourse was really dominant in christian book selling in in classes taught at christian colleges this idea of like um raising up leaders right um um and i always felt like the language it was a language it was incorporating a language of business right Mm -hmm. um and imposing it 
on the church, right? But I always felt like it was the wrong language to use. I mean, I don't see the Bible necessarily. I mean, we talk about leaders um, in the Bible, but very often, if not usually, in more critical ways, it's always the king screwed something up, right? <laughs> and so, um, uh, not always, but you know what I mean. Um, and honestly, in the way leadership um, is defined in the whole in the Bible is, as you said before, one of sort of self-sacrifice and um, and lowering oneself, right? Um, and for whatever reason, when you use the language of business to um, formulate your ideas about leadership, you get the opposite of that. You get the person who is raised up and, and, and sort of put into a worshipful, uh, a stance of someone to be worshipped by um, the people who can learn from them and be led by them. And so I feel like um, this, this, there was a, like a movement of book selling basically and conference uh, themes uh, for a generation before Mark Driscoll stepped into it. And so I feel like that's another pre-existing condition, if you will, of, of, of Christianity that he was able to sort of step into and with his natural gifts of, of communication um, really sort of like uh again, weaponize and, and used to abuse people. And um, I just to give credit, we're talking about plagiarism. The, the most recent um, Julie Roy's podcast that I, I listened to um, is about, uh, it's an interview with somebody and I forget his name too, uh, who wrote a book called Unleader. Um, and he's sort of critical about this whole um, leadership idea as well. And so this is sort of fresh in my mind as we're having this conversation. Sure. But go ahead. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I'm probably going to push back a little bit on that uh, in the sense that I do think there is a maybe maybe this is a matter of distinguishing between legitimate and illegitimate focuses on leadership. Yeah. Uh, but I do think there is a sense in which leadership is and the, the need to cultivate leaders is all throughout the New Testament. Um, and I think Jesus has in mind not just the mission, but also the leg the earthly legacy he's leaving behind. So throughout the gospel accounts, you see him gathering men in sort of concentric circles. There are scenes that take place with the crowds, and there are scenes with the twelve, and there are scenes with the three. And there's also some rather cryptic passages where the seventy are sent out on sort of like trial runs of evangelistic ministry. And they're given directions as to what to preach, if they're treated well, what to do, if they're not treated well, what to do. And then you see a... I mean, in the book of Acts, one of the earliest movements after Christ's ascension is a focus on distinguishing roles and sort of uh, maybe to anachronistically use the phrase. Um, oh, crud. I set that up and now I'm blanking on the phrase. Division of labor. That's the phrase I'm looking for. Uh, but you see, like the apostles say, um, actually, we need to dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the work of teaching. So you see the creation of a different kind of leader, the the diakonos, the, the servant who will be he will deal with the physical needs of the congregation so that the apostles are not. And then you see Paul is constantly telling Timothy and Titus uh, that they need to be on the lookout for men who are, who are worthy of being entrusted to lead the church. So I think part of what I would look at there is, first and foremost, there, there is a leadership movement, but it's as old as the church. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, it's the, it's the sense in which the church is always one generation away from failure. Right. And so... Um, so I would no. at the same time, I would say I don't necessarily disagree with you that there may be a temptation to look at 
non-biblical models for leadership. And I think that that's where I was going. Um, I, yeah. I, I, your pushback is well received. Um, and I'm glad you clarified that, but this is where I was yeah. going here. Go ahead. Yeah. The, um, my, my dad is an avid reader of John Maxwell books and he forced me to read the 17 laws of whatever and the 21 laws of this and the 24 laws of that. Um, and like those books are filled with good advice. They're not inherently scriptural. Uh, and they sort of carry with them <coughs> the implicit desire or the implicit idea that if you set up your church ministry kind of like an effective business corporate culture and lead it accordingly, uh, flourishing will follow. Right. And it's sort of a it's a baptizing of now. And again, it's not that they're bad principles, uh, but they definitely kind of carry that vibe with them. Um, I think as far as the movement goes, uh, a phrase that might be helpful here is the church growth movement. Of yeah, the, yes. Of the 1990s, 80s, and 90s. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, that's where you see some of that in the earliest episode of Mount Mars Hill. We're talking about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. And suddenly this idea that like, well, wait a minute. What if we can have one person, one church that's growing? And once it's growing, um, you then do get a, and this is part of your earlier question about mega churches, perhaps. Yeah. But the, uh, I mean, so what do you do in a best case scenario if we imagine a church that has 250 people that is doing just great and the pastor says, everybody, okay, everybody find one family to bring with you for our bring a friend to church Sunday. Well, then we get to 500, we get to 1,000, we're at 8,000 people within a year. And all of a sudden, these are all people who need to be mentored and discipled and brought into the faith. And that creates a massive leadership need. And so church leadership begins trying to figure out and you, you do get a, I mean, you can get, you get all kinds of problems when you speed up the pipeline. What used to be a, um, I'll borrow an example from the Roman Catholic church. Uh, their seminary process takes six years and it involves two years or three years of theology and three years of philosophy. Hmm. But if you were to hypothetically need priests a lot faster, you could cut some of that down, but you lose something in the process. Right. So, I think there's as churches grow, there is an increased pressure to put people into authority, but you also get all kinds of problems when you rush people into authority. You don't get that they're not seasoned, they're not tested, they're not weighed, they haven't gone through suffering or trials, and they're they're themselves maturing in the faith while also in positions of leadership. That's where you get, uh, and I'll, I'll use Josh Harris as my example here. I think he he flamed out because. Either he was not actually a believer or he was so poorly discipled that he fell out of the faith, in which case I would still I would say theologically he was never a believer. But that's a, another discussion. That's a so, Baptist uh, thing. <laughs> oh, that's a reformed thing, man. If you are Just once saved, always saved. So if you were not actually saved, you were never saved to begin with. It doesn't matter if you were sprinkled, if you were dunked, if, uh, if the Holy Spirit waved at you. That doesn't matter. If you fall out of the faith, you were never really a Christian. But anyway, those those are my thoughts on leadership. Where 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 do you see? Where, what are your thoughts? And I, I agree. I think that yeah, the once so the ideology of church growth necessitates um, a kind of system to see it out, to see it through, right? And so um, I think that. Um, then we go to the world of business. And frankly, the people who are in a lot of these mega churches, the well-respected people are very successful local businessmen, right? And they end up being elders on the church board. And I think people can often give 
businessmen, and this happens with colleges too. I mean, everybody in most colleges, most of the board are prominent local businessmen, right? And and we kind of, I think, think that because they can run a business, that they they have this kind of like you know, divine skill that the rest of us can benefit from and that they have this insight that the rest of us don't have. Um, and there's something magical about the, uh, the principles of business. Um, the problem that I have with that mainly is that we only look at the successes uh, of businessmen and we never understand that for every success we see, there's 10,000 failures, right? Um, like, uh, but, but nonetheless, but I think that, yeah. And so that church growth movement depended on this kind of like business school model uh, of church leadership right and and so um and i think that that is the point the point at which um you end up with like pastor as ceo right and i think that that is not the right model right and 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 i think that um that that's where i was going with it and, and i'm glad yeah. you clarified you gave a lot of um excellent context for that oh yeah i think that 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 uh when you were talking about the business model carrying over it uh are, are, are you a fan of The Office, Danny? Oh yeah. Okay, and you'll probably you'll probably know the episode I'm thinking of, but it's uh, there's a <clears throat> an episode in I think it's season five, it might be towards the end of four, where David Wallace turns to Michael Scott and says, "Your numbers are great. You're beating out every branch in a terrible economy. What are you doing right?" And Michael has no idea, <laughs> and like. He, he just, he starts making, that's where he gets that great line. Like, sometimes I start a sentence and I find the ending along the way. That's how he doesn't find the ending. I think a lot of pastors who experience rapid church growth. Now, again, this is just my personal opinion. I don't have any stats. I don't have a source for this. This is just personal opinion. Um, I think a lot of them don't really, they can't explain why. Yeah. And if you latch on to a program um, that, that's what a lot of churches will do. They'll say, oh, we, we did this program. You should too. Well, that program may have worked in a specific context, but yeah. it may or may not transfer. Yeah. And I mean, it's you know, if we take it back to the New Testament, this is where I think uh, Jesus's words about, that's where the, it's the picture of uh, uh, Apollos watered and uh, Cephas planted, but uh, God brings the harvest. I think I messed that quote up, but it's, it's the idea that like God is doing something. Uh, it's not, we can't quite, we can't really predict it. What we can do, that's um, uh, so I want to bring in uh, Mark Dever as a countering uh, picture. Mm, good. What we can do is be really, really careful to, in as much as we are building God's church, um, we can build it according to the principles that Scripture gives us. And Mark Dever is my favorite person who spent, a t he spent uh, close to 20 years writing, preaching, teaching about this. And resisting the impetus to let the church he is currently head elder at grow beyond about 900 to 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, I mean, they are sending church plants every year. They planted churches in Dubai. They planted churches in Latin America. They've planted churches all around the world because people keep coming to them and being deeply, deeply discipled. And Dever sends them out. And he does. their church does a ton of work to sharpen pastors and work with them, but he's deeply committed to only doing what scripture says they can do as a church. And in which case that for his, from his theology, that means that their church will never grow beyond what they can assemble as one ecclesia. Yeah. And that's limiting. And I think that gives us a very different picture of what a healthy church ought to be. Yeah. And it, it may mean we're back around to like, well, how do we define success? 
if we define success as butts and seats, well, um, porn websites get lots of butts and seats. Churches should not stoop to those tactics. Right. Um, lottery raffles give get lots of butts and seats. If we're actually committed to building the Church of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures, um, maybe it won't have lots and lots of people. Right. Yeah, That that is the, I mean, but that's so like, for an American Christian, oh, anachronistic, yeah. right? I mean, it's just we, I mean, and you, you see a lot of these mega churches growing along with the suburbs, right? They, they're... Uh, they're a, a consequence uh, in some ways of the suburbanization of America. And so in the way that consumer culture in general rose during that time, I mean, these mega churches are filling the need for that. Right. And so these services become um, whatever, like uh, inspirational entertainment concerts. Right. And, and so um, but the, but that that's why ultimately people are going to them. And so I think that, yeah, the idea of a megachurch in this day and age, um, I, I just think that it may look successful, but it's by a different standard than it should be. Right. And and, and I guess I, I've, I've always thought, too, that like at this point, I we look at the the church of acts or something right and and we see people like preaching the gospel and telling people who jesus is right i it, there's got to be a difference culturally for a person growing up in 21st century america jesus isn't this alien concept that uh for i mean by and large i mean sure there are some people who'd never heard the word or something like that but by and large everybody has some relationship with the church, either positive or negative, right? Um, or at least they know of its existence. And so discipleship even has to look different, right? And so like, I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, sure. This idea of systematizing it and stamping this one size fits all approach uh, and expecting everyone to live up with it just, I think, is wrong. My, my, Pastor and friend Rob, uh, pastor of my church, he always complains that when he goes to conferences, the people who are given the stage are, um, people who are like big successful church pastors. And they're telling all these pastors of 75 to 150 uh, members what they're doing wrong. And like, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the person who has 75 people in their pews every Sunday are doing something right in a way you can't understand. I don't want to, I think I, I, I tend to agree with most of what you just said, but I also don't want to throw the mega church completely under the bus I, or I have mixed feelings. Yes. what is happening there. Cause I mean, I do think there's, I mean, I know of at least two Southern Baptist churches that I've been part of over the years that are, they're at the level of a small mega church floating right around that 2000 member mark. And there are great people doing great ministry and great discipleship in the midst of that. And it's a mix of systems and innovation and kind of constantly looking at how do we faithfully contextualize the gospel in a way that people understand. Mm -hmm. uh, to your question or to your comment earlier about um, every, sort of like everybody knows what who Jesus is in the church, that is less true than it was a decade ago. And true. I, my job this year has uh, taken me to the other side of the county in, in Wake County, North Carolina. On the eastern side, you have mostly white families. On the western side, you're a lot closer to the Research Triangle Park and a lot of big tech, big pharma companies that do major research here. <coughs> it's a much, much more diverse side of the county. And so I've encountered students at this new school who 
the only thing they know about Jesus of Nazareth is whatever they encounter in 10th grade history. Mm. And that, it's a it's a term. Uh, they're Hindu, they're Muslim, they're Sikh, they're irreligious. Sure. Um, they, and so I think, um, I know Al Mohler was talking last week on the briefing about uh, the latest Pew Research study numbers. Uh, apparently claiming religious faith uh, at all is down to 69% in America. So the new number is probably going to be three out of 10 Americans see themselves as irreligious. Right. I, mean, so I think we are actually getting, we're getting back to, we're basically getting back to the kind of context that the church was born in, where the big need for churches is not how do we bring people into Christian subculture and make, and turn them into good Bible belt people. It's actually, how do you help people meet the living God right. and help them realize that they have no idea the need that they have for a savior? Because they don't. Yeah, This is, this is Charles Taylor's work, too, in, uh, in a secular age that we've lost the sense of enchantments and we no longer even feel the loss anymore. Yeah. No, that's really good insight there. Um, and I happen to live in a, a context we don't have immigration, right? In Pennsylvania, that's the problem, frankly, uh, with <laughs> Pennsylvania. And um, so everybody here is, for the most part, someone who was raised culturally sure. Catholic and has no uh, <laughs> has no like other attachment beyond that, right? So I am working in a different um, environment altogether. But what you're saying is absolutely right. And I would add to it... Um, allowing those communities who come to know Jesus to sort of develop their own like systems, their own, uh, you know, of worship. Right. Uh, and, and we don't need to be imposing, um, this sort of like suburbanite, uh, you know, mega church, uh, vision of what worship looks like on people. Um, and, and I think it's fine to allow, local cultures to, to develop their own kind of um, practices, I suppose, in, in worshiping that. Um, but what that does, of course, is take the power out of the hands of the central planners, right? <laughs> and right. So, and, and that's why that's so difficult to, uh, to I mean, it's, it's tough to come up with a prescriptive book about doing that, right? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, not to go all Baptist on you, but that is the heart of Baptist ecclesiology. I mean, we, we firmly believe in the autonomy of the local church yeah. to the point that like if a group of people from Pakistan all become believers and they assemble and they con constitute First Baptist Pakistani Church of Raleigh, whatever they want to call themselves, and they call a Pakistani minister as their, their pastor, uh, and they may develop a very Pakistani way of worship, like we as Baptists would celebrate that. And, and there is, I mean, we are the, we're the original anarchist when it comes to central planning for theology. Like right. we rejected that 500 years ago. Right. <laughs> we're, uh, we're all about the, the local autonomy of the, and the priesthood of all believers, man. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Josh, this was so much fun. And uh, I, I was just dying for a, uh, a chance to talk about this podcast with somebody. And I, I really, really appreciate you taking the, the hour and 15 minutes or whatever it's been here uh, for us to do this. I, I've learned a lot. And um, I want to encourage everybody to go to um, Josh's podcast, The Optimistic Curmudgeon, uh, and uh, and check out what he does on a, a regular basis. Uh, and, uh, and I want to extend an invitation again, come back anytime you like. It was a, just a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you. This was really fun, Danny. I appreciate it. I, I yeah, this has been fun to uh, to chat about a, a common show with somebody. I, 
feel like we're we're slightly on a we're probably in slightly different places theologically. This has been really fun to kind of hear what you're seeing in, in Driscoll's story and and to yeah. kind of see a lot of uh, common hope for the church in recognizing dangers of yeah. uh, an idolatrous view of leadership and, yeah. and really the, the hope of the gospel. It's yeah. still, still, the, still our hope. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I hope people know by now that I'm very sort of ecumenical in my, um, I have this sort of uh, drive of hospitality. And so, yeah, I'm, it's very, uh, I, I love talking to people that I might disagree with slightly on things. And, uh, um, but yeah, this was all in great faith and I, I really, really do appreciate it. So, um, those of you listening, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the other, uh, podcast network, uh, contributions to this uh, reaction series to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you have not listened to that podcast, um, that's freely available as well uh, on the internet and, uh, and all your podcatchers. So take a listen to those. There's like 12 episodes plus some uh, uh, bonus episodes here and there. Um, so it's uh, you'll dedicate probably 30 or 40 hours <laughs> to listening to all of it, but, uh, uh, but it's, it's well worth your time. And, uh, and for, Uh, Josh, my name is Danny Anderson. I thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Mm -hmm.